you know, it's pretty self-evident that life is, has got its rat's nest of miseries, and that's for sure. And maybe you could even make a categorical statement that life is mostly a rat's nest of misery. You know, and you could make a pretty powerful argument for that. But then there's a counter question, which is, well, what if you tried not to make it any more miserable than it had to be, right? Then what, then what would it be like? And my suspicions are is that a lot of that misery, I would suspect that most of that misery would go away. Because it's the unnecessary misery that really brings you down, you know? It's like, well, if someone has cancer, it's like, that sucks. But it's not like, it's not like you can say, if only we had done this differently, then that wouldn't have happened. But when someone's out like torturing you in a malevolent way, or maybe you're doing the same, you can always ask yourself, well, is it really? Is this really necessary? Is this just like a useless add-on to the miseries of life? That's what disheartens people. And so even in your own life, if, if, you, if, if you aren't suffering from self-imposed misery, and you're only suffering from inescapable misery, maybe you could handle that. And you know, you could, you could survive, you could bear it. And, and even maybe without becoming irredeemably corrupt. And so the goal would be, well, yeah, life is a rat's nest of miseries and maybe it has no ultimate meaning. We could say that if we're feeling particularly pessimistic, but it still leaves one question open, which is if you didn't do everything you could to make it worse, how good could you make it be? And the, the least answer is, well, it, it could be tragedy, but maybe not hell. And, and I think that's right. I really believe that. That's, that's the most pessimistic proper statement. The worst case outcome, in the worst of all possible worlds, is that your life could be tragic, but not hell. And that's a lot better than hell, right? It's, it's, and you think, I could give you an example of the difference. You're at your mother's deathbed. Well, that's tragedy. Here's another scenario. You're at your mother's deathbed and all you, you and all your idiot siblings are arguing. Well, that's the difference between tragedy and hell. And you might be able to tolerate the first circumstance and maybe it would even bring you closer together with your family members. The second one, no one can bear that. You walk away from a situation like that, sick of yourself and sick of everything else too. And you know, it's often the case that tragic circumstances bring out the dragons because the stress is high and all those things that people haven't dealt with, they don't have the energy to repress and, and all the bitterness comes pouring forward. It's like, seriously, man. So that's actually a good, it's a rough lesson, but it's a good hallmark for figuring out whether or not you're you've got yourself adjusted properly and in relationship to your siblings. It's like, if you were all gathered around the bed of someone close who was dying, could you manage it? And if the answer is no, it's like, well, put your life together because it's gonna happen. And you should be the person who's there that can do it and do it properly. And then maybe you'd find that it isn't the sort of thing that will undermine your faith in life itself. And I've seen, I've seen both of those situations, you know, ugly, ugly, ugly situations, you know, murderously ugly situations. And then they're opposite where people have had terrible things happen to, happen to them as a family. And, you know, they pull together and they rebuild their damn ship and they sail away. So that seems to me to be a lot better. I don't care what sort of psychotherapist you are. You're always teaching them the same thing. You're the thing that can, you're not, you're not the plan. You're the thing that can confront the obstacle to the plan. And then when you know even further that the obstacle is not only an obstacle, but opportunity itself, well, then your whole view of the world can change because you might think, well, I've got this plan. Something came up to object to it. It's like, it's possible that the thing that's objecting has something to teach you that will take you to the place where you develop an even better plan.
it's a nice framework to use. It's like, are you so sure that this is a problem? Is that the only way that you can look at it? Or is it an opportunity? I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, naively optimistic. There are some things that's pretty hard to extract gold from some dragons, and maybe the death of a family member is a good example of that. But in, even in a situation like that, I can tell you that it's an opportunity for, it's an opportunity for maturation, that's for sure. And the thing is, you might say, well, it's pretty miserable to go, to be digging for gold when someone's falling into the grave. Well, if they really love you, first of all, that's what they'll want you to do. And second, you're going to make their death a lot more palatable experience for them. If you're someone who can be in the room and be helpful instead of be, you know, quivering in the corner and feeling that the entire world is collapsing in on you. I mean, that's another. You want to be the useful person at the funeral. How's that for a goal? That's a good goal, man. You know that you've got yourself together in a situation like that because you're going to be at them. And maybe you want to be the person on whose shoulder people cry. That'd be a good goal. It's kind of, you know, I don't like being naively optimistic. So when I tell you to get your life together, I'm not going to say roses and sunshine. It's like that's 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 pablum for fools. But it really is something to be the reliable person at a funeral, right? And you can aim at that. You can do that. It's you got to be tough to do that because it also means that you can sustain a major loss without collapsing. And that you've got to be a monster to do that, right? Because you might think, and I've had clients like this. Well, I love my child. I love my mother so much that I couldn't survive if anything happened to them. It's like you have some serious thinking to do about that. It's like you really want to curse someone with that kind of love, do you? I couldn't live without you. It's like my God, get away from me! Really, it's terrible. That's the Oedipal mother, right? That's like.、Um, I'll forgive you no matter what you do. It's like really, you, no matter what I do, eh? You are not my friend. That's for sure, not at all. It's a horrible thing to do to someone. That's that's the witch in the Hansel and Gretel story. All gingerbread and outside to the lost kid. Inside, you feed them candy and make them fat and eat them. Right, that's Hansel and Gretel. That's the Oedipal mother. That's one of Freud's major discoveries. It's a major discovery. It's like the devouring force of love. You want the person to be able to stand on their own, and the price you pay for that is that you stand on your own. It's like good to have you around. Glad you're here. But if 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 tragedies, when and if and when tragedy strikes, either of us, I hope that one of us is standing when it blows past. And and that there's a harshness about that that's unbelievably cruel because you know you say well if, if my mother died I could live well what kind of monster are you exactly the death of your mother doesn't do you in well it turns out that being a monster is the right thing so and that's a rough thing to learn but it's necessary to learn you know because it also makes you you know at some point for example as you get older <clears throat> by the time you're in your mid twenties something like that. You should start having a relationship with your parents that's approximately one of peers, and you can tell if you have that. So here's a little trick you can use. So you have parents, obviously. They have friends. You probably care what your parents think. I would imagine. Do you care what their friends think of you? And the answer to that is, well, not nearly as much. And so then I would say, well, why do you care what your parents think of you then? They're the same people. You know what I mean? It's just luck of the draw that your parents are someone else's kids' friends. They don't think the same way about them that you do. Well, that's where you see that you have a projection, 
right? If by the time you're 30, if what your parents think of you matters more than what, say, a random set of their friends think of you, then you've still got your parents confused with, with God. That's one way of looking at it. You've still got them confused with an archetype. And you're still a child. And you might think, well, it's pretty damn rude not to think about what your parents think of you anymore, not to care. It's like, yeah, it's kind of rude, but maybe you'll be useful for them when they get old. And that's a much better form of caring. It's like you're going to be independent enough and strong enough and, and detached enough so that when the, when, the, when the power dynamic shifts, which it will, that you'll be the person that can carry things forward. Well, you can't do a better thing for them than that, right? That's the best of all possible outcomes for your parents. That's another way of thinking about it. Well, that's the normal world. With, that's the garden with the snake in it, and that's chaos. That, that's the chaos that arises when your plans collapse, right? That's the world and the underworld. And so the underworld's always there, and it's lurking beneath everything. It's like the figure of the shark in the Jaws poster, right? There you are, swinging at the top. There's that terrible thing underneath that can come up and pull you down. That's the world. So you need to be able to operate here, and you need to be able to operate here. And when you operate here, well, that's when you rescue your father from the belly of the whale. That's when you go down, you see, when you're down in chaos and you don't know what the hell's going on, you have to rediscover the values that orient people, have oriented people forever. That's what you have to discover. So, for example, when I'm dealing with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and they've usually encountered someone malevolent, they have to relearn the description of good and evil. Because if they don't, they have no framework. They're lost. They think, well, there's malevolence afoot in the world. And I'm a naive, I'm a naive, I'm a prey animal, a naive prey animal for the malevolence of the world. It's like, well, good luck functioning under that set of assumptions, man. You just do not recover from that. You stay at home in your burrow. That's what you do. Well, you have to. You go down into that. You think, okay, well, malevolence is afoot. I better be the sort of person that can understand it and deal with it. And that's another reason why you have to transform yourself into a monster. That's the Jungian incorporation of the shadow. It's no bloody joke because the only thing that a monster won't mess with is another monster. And you might say, well, I don't want to transform myself into a monster. It's like, you don't have a choice. You can either be a pathetic monster or you can be a monster with some power. Those are your options. There's no non-monster alternative, weak or strong. And I don't mean strong like dominating tyrant strength. That isn't what I mean at all. I mean strength like functioning at a funeral strength. And that's a kind of monstrosity. And when you're down in chaos, that's what you have to rediscover.